The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. I'm your host, Allison, and I can't say enough how thankful I am for your patience about this episode. If you listened to my short update the other day, you would have heard that all of my files corrupted for this episode, and I couldn't publish it. Over the last few days, I've been working diligently to try and get it out to you, so I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it for you twice. In today's episode, I'm going to be discussing what is likely one of the most infamous cases that all of us have heard about probably in the last decade or so. At least, that's what it feels like for me. Lori Vallow, as we'll come to know her, has a trail of death and tragedy that follows her wherever she goes. This case is still ongoing, so it's unclear exactly what her involvement in each of these deaths, if any at all, actually was. But it's no secret that it's all suspicious. And if you were unlucky enough to be born, related, or knowing Lori Vallow, and you are still alive today, then you should really be counting your blessings. I'm going to put a bit of a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode. As you may or may not know, two of Lori Vallow's children were murdered, Tylee and JJ, likely by her and her newest husband, Chad Daybell. But that's unconfirmed. What is confirmed is that their deaths were brutal. We don't know exactly what happened to Tylee and JJ, but we can surmise from the state of their bodies as they were found that whatever it was, whatever their last moments were, were incredibly horrific. So just be aware of that if you're choosing to listen to today's episode. As I had mentioned, Lori Vallow has a path of tragedy behind her that includes the deaths of a lot of people. But the ones that hit home for most are the children, of course. So be cautious and be choosy with your listenership. Don't engage if you don't think you can handle it. And for those who can handle it, I think it's a good time to jump right in. Lori Vallow was born on June 26, 1973, in sunny San Bernardino, California. Not much is known about Lori in her early life. Not much is known about her parents, other than some controversial statements they put out as this case progressed. And the only real fact of note here is that she was religious. This is a theme that will continue to play out in this case. Lori is more than devout in her faith. From the limited research that is available, it seems like she was always that way, but certainly not to the extent that we're going to see later. Lori was raised with two brothers, Alex and Adam. They also had a sister named Stacy Lynn Cox Cope. In 1998, when Lori would have been about 25 years old, her sister Stacy died, and nobody really knows why. Stacy's cause of death was never ruled to be anything conclusive. It always remained undetermined. 
Unfortunately, the reality of life is that sometimes people pass away, and seemingly without reason. But Stacy was not old, nor was she sick, according to the reports I read, and it just seems quite odd that someone like her would die. I digress, but as far as I'm concerned, that is the first person in Lori Vallow's life, at that time Lori Cox, who died. Three years later, in 2001, Lori met a man named Joseph Ryan. Together, they had a daughter named Tylee, Tylee Ryan. The couple also took in Lori's other son, a son from a previous marriage to a man named William Lagogia. This boy's name is Colby. Colby, Lori, Tylee, and Joseph all lived a relatively happy or normal life, I guess you can say. But all that is glitter is not gold, and the couple would get divorced only a few years after they got married, with the proceedings concluding in 2005. From my research, the ending of this marriage to Joseph Ryan is the first glimpse into Lori's crazy that we really get to see. Further, what happens next after the couple gets divorced really exemplifies a theme in this case. It's one that'll want you to keep in mind as you're listening. Lori's brother Alex is highly vulnerable to Lori's influence. There are many occasions in this case that you'll hear about where Alex does literally almost anything to gain Lori's approval, and it seems like he will literally do as she wills. After Joseph and Lori got divorced in 2005, we get the first glimpse into what that really means for Alex Cox. I'm assuming both during and after the divorce proceedings from Joseph, proceedings we can assume were quite nasty given the story I'm about to tell you, Lori was making claims to her brother Alex that Joseph was sexually abusing their children, Tylee and Colby. Although from my research there seems to be no merit to these claims, Alex tends to take things that Lori says at face value. That was true even when Lori decided to take things a step further and tell Alex that Joseph was not only abusing the children, but also her as well. Alex Cox then took it upon himself to devise a plan to take revenge on Joseph Ryan. He decided to attack Joseph, going on to taser him, and would serve about a year in prison for this, serving time in jail going off of just somebody's word. What I haven't told you yet is that Joseph Ryan was actually Lori's third husband. She was married twice before, the second husband being William Lagotia, that man who is Colby's biological father. And from the reading I've done, it seems like William was able to get out of his marriage with Lori unscathed, much more lucky than Joseph was. There's one detail about Joseph Ryan that I have to mention, even though it happens many years into the future after this attack on him by Alex. In 2018, Joseph Ryan was found dead in his apartment in Phoenix, Arizona. Joseph Ryan was found very badly decomposed, according to most of the reports I read. This indicated to police that arrived on the scene that he had been dead for a little while, at least. However, despite what seemed to be an advanced stage of decomposition, according to what I read, the Maricopa Medical Examiner was able to determine that Joseph died from natural causes, citing previously existing cardiovascular disease. This may seem like an isolated incident on its own, 
a middle-aged man dies from heart disease. Not too uncommon in the real world, I don't think. But incidences like these, given it's a person associated with Lori Vallow, deserve a second look, at least in my opinion. We've now encountered two people who have died that have been very close to Lori Vallow, and we're not even 10 minutes into the episode yet. But that's certainly not the end of the violence that surrounds her life. In 2006, Lori Vallow met and married another man, her fourth husband, by the name of Charles Woodcock. At this time, Lori was a devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Charles, on the other hand, was Catholic. The couple got married in Las Vegas, and Charles decided to convert to the LDS church for her. From my understanding about their relationship, this was not the first or the last act of devout love that Charles would do unto Lori. He not only loved her devoutly in real life, but also in their spiritual lives as well. In fact, it was reported that Charles would do almost anything for Lori. He was so in love with her. He even made her the sole beneficiary of his $1 million life insurance policy. And for a while, it seemed like this love was reciprocated. By all accounts, Lori and Charles had a happy marriage. Even Lori admits this, and it was a happy marriage for quite a long time. Throughout their time together, the family unit moved around quite a bit, ending up on the islands of Hawaii in 2014, and moving back to Arizona in 2017, and every time they moved back and forth, they took their big family with them, being two of Lori's kids and two of Charles's kids from a previous marriage. In 2006, Charles and Lori adopted another son, a son named Joshua Jackson, or JJ. JJ was Charles's biological grandnephew, and his own biological parents unfortunately suffered with drug addiction. Since they were unable to properly care for JJ, Lori and Charles found it in their hearts to take him under their wing. By all accounts, they were good parents and treated JJ like their own. They were patient through JJ's development of neurodivergent disorders such as autism and ADHD. They made sure he had access to accessibility services such as a service dog, and he was the perfect addition to their budding family. But once again, when it comes to Lori Vallow, all that is glitter is certainly not gold. And although things were going well for her, Charles, and the rest of their family, in Lori's life, there is certainly nothing good that lasts forever. Before long, she would find herself spiraling deeper and deeper into extremist religious ideologies, and she would meet the perfect partner to circle the drain with her and drag down everyone else that they knew. In 2018, while Lori was still married to Charles, the same year that her ex-husband, Joseph Ryan, was found dead, she met a man named Chad Daybell. Chad Daybell was born in Utah, raised in Utah, continued to live in Utah, and even got married in Utah to a woman named Tamara in 1990. Chad graduated from Brigham Young University, better known as BYU, with a Bachelor's of Arts in Journalism, and he would go on to employ these skills, founding the Spring Creek Book Company, 
where he self-published books about apocalyptic end times. Aside from being an end-of-the-world prepper, as they call it, Chad Daybell was a part-time gravedigger. In his spare time, he would publish his books, and he even started a podcast. Throughout their marriage together, Chad and Tamara, or Tammy as I'll refer to her for the rest of this episode, had five children together. Similar to Lori and Charles, they moved around quite a bit, and in 2015, Chad claimed he heard some sort of voice telling him that he needed to relocate to Rexburg, Idaho. And so the family packed up and relocated there permanently from Utah. I mention this fact because it is important. You need to know that Chad Daybell was devoutly religious, but certainly not in a traditional way. In his spare time, when he wasn't digging graves or publishing podcasts, he was trying to convince others that he had godlike powers. He was trying to convince others that he could sense dark souls, spirits, and quote-unquote zombies. He believed that the end times he was preparing for was the second coming of Christ, and that his values, his morals, and his direct line of communication with God was the only thing that would save him and anyone else. Anyone who didn't agree needed to be exterminated. This value system of his would progressively escalate over time, until eventually his beliefs, personality, and manipulative tendencies resembled that of a cult leader. Unfortunately, with a twisted mind like Lori Vallow, if these two ever met, the only thing that could come out of it is trouble. And that's exactly what happened. Lori Vallow found Chad Daybell's books and other media productions. Eventually, she reached out to him and they began conversing a lot. I can only assume that these early conversations were them simply agreeing with each other about their own belief systems and how wrong the rest of the world was that they weren't preparing for the second coming of Christ. Then, on December 5th of 2018, Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow appeared together on a podcast called Preparing a People, which is a doomsday-themed media production with the goal of preparing people again for that second coming of Christ. According to the people who run this podcast, including Chad and Lori, they believed that second coming was set to happen in summer of 2020. Chad and Lori began spending a lot of time together, whether it was in person, over the phone, over text, you name it, they were always bonding over their beliefs. Their relationship reminds me of the episode I did about the Toronto van attack. In that episode, I discuss how people with extreme beliefs find online forums filled with other people who have extreme beliefs, and they feed off of each other, further radicalizing one another. And eventually, these people become unrecognizable to the people who love them the most. As Lori began getting closer and closer to Chad Daybell, Charles noticed. I mean, how could you not? But not only did Charles notice that Lori was spending a significant amount of time with another man, but also that Lori began speaking in terms that Charles didn't recognize or appreciate. Lori began walking around their house as if she was holier than thou, pretending that she was all-knowing about the world and how it will end. Eventually, she began targeting Charles, her husband, as a dark soul. According to Lori and Chad, 
A dark soul was someone who was evil, someone who was not worthy of Jesus Christ in his second coming, and who would inevitably be exterminated when he arrived. In the eyes of Charles, the onset of these beliefs was sudden, but we all know they had been brewing under the surface as Laurie had been becoming closer and closer to Chad. But from his perspective, he had done everything for Laurie. He had converted to the LDS church for her, he had dedicated his faith and his life and his love to her for over a decade, and within the span of six to nine months, she was turning her back on her husband whom she shared children with and casting him as a dark soul, saying, I will destroy you. At this point, Lori had become unrecognizable. On January 31st of 2019, the Gilbert Police Department in the state of Arizona received a phone call from Lori's husband, Charles Woodcock. He was claiming to them that his wife Lori had left, took the kids, and disappeared. Lori had locked him out of his house, drained their joint bank account of over $35,000, and eventually went on to steal his car from the airport. We find out later that Lori Vallow actually disappeared for 58 days, and she would not be back until mid-March. During this period of Lori being missing, Charles would attempt to file for divorce, claiming that Lori threatened to kill him if he got in the way of her preparing for the second coming of Christ. I can only imagine his reasoning for filing for divorce extended well beyond the scope of the verbal threats. Between Lori escalating in extremism and her newfound closeness with another man, I'm sure Charles was more than fed up by the time Lori disappeared. However, I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about this phone call and talk about what happened when Gilbert police responded to Charles. On police body cam footage, you can see Charles trying to tell the responding officer that Lori is a danger to herself and others. The police officer initially doesn't seem to take it very seriously. According to the cop, quote, I will have you destroyed is not a threat to Charles's life. Charles decides to elaborate a little bit further on Lori's mindset these days, and you can see him almost desperately trying to explain to the responding officer that any verbal threats from Lori whatsoever should be taken absolutely seriously. Even if they sound outlandish, the sentiment behind them is very real. He says to the police officer that Lori has been saying things such as, quote, You're not Charles, I don't know what you did with Charles, but I can murder you now with my powers. According to Charles in this body cam footage, Lori has also been apparently communicating with religious people down in Utah who were telling her about past lives and messing with her head. Because of this, she's been accusing her husband Charles of being someone else, someone she claims is a man named Nick Schneider, Charles doesn't know who that is at all. But even more worryingly, he doesn't know why she would think he was some random guy all of a sudden after being married to her for so long. So what makes her a danger to herself and she's to others? She threatened me, murder me, kill me. She threatened to murder you? Yes. And she said How did she do that? My, my bishop right there is in the car, 
she was on the phone with me today when she said, I will have you destroyed, was what she said there. Okay, that's not, that's not a threat to kill you. Yesterday was a threat to kill me. Today, okay. course, what, did, what did she say yesterday? She said, you're not Charles. I don't know who you are, what you did with Charles, but I can murder you now with my powers. Okay. Okay. All right. So you're gonna, I'm gonna kill you too. I'm gonna kill you. Yesterday was I'm gonna So she's kill speaking you. as a spiritual being. She's not here. Okay. She lost her reality. This whole situation is very hard to watch. Initially, the police are dismissive of Charles. Part of me understands why, because what he's saying that she is saying does sound crazy. But we know in hindsight that Lori is conniving extremely manipulative, and that Charles has every right to fear for his life. Again, during this time, Charles tried to file for divorce, and eventually he would move out of Arizona and start living in Texas. Eventually, he would find out about Lori's affair with Chad. Not that he didn't already suspect something was going on. Consequently, he found out exactly who was putting all of these ideas in her head. Unbeknownst to Charles, the affair between Lori and Chad wasn't simply just a romantic one. Not only were they feeding off of each other's extreme ideas, but they were deeply radicalizing each other, and also some of the people around them. If you were involved in either of their inner circles and didn't immediately subscribe to their beliefs, you were a dark soul. That included Charles. But it was when Charles threatened to tell Chad Daybell's wife, Tammy, about the affair that his own wife, Lori, and Chad were having that things escalated from threatening and dangerous to fatal. On July 11th of 2019, police arrived at Lori's house in Arizona. Body cam footage of this incident shows Lori's brother, Alex, being sat down by officers in front of the home and the officer is asking, what happened today, and how did it get to this? What lies inside of the home behind Alex is the body of Charles. He had been shot to death only a few minutes prior by Alex. And according to him, it happened after a confrontation when Charles came to pick up his kids and take them to school. According to Alex Cox, Charles showed up at the home to pick up his kids, and when he did, he ended up getting into a fight with Alex. This happened after him and Lori began arguing. Alex decided to insert himself, according to him, and Charles threatened him, telling him not to interfere anymore. When Alex refused to step down, according to him, Charles then went at him with a baseball bat. After retreating to his own bedroom that he had at Lori's house for some reason, Alex grabbed a gun, and despite being in a closed bedroom by himself, totally able to call 911 with no imminent threats around him as Charles had not pursued him throughout the house, instead Alex decides to get his gun and bring it back outside to the common area where the original fight had began. As Alex is explaining this story to the officers, Lori herself approaches the scene, evidently showing no signs of curiosity, almost as if she knew exactly what happened the entire time. Herself, her daughter Ty Lee, and Alex were all taken into custody and interviewed at the Chandler Police Department. 
During Lori's interview, she makes vague and incomplete statements about how Charles was always trying to control her. Thus, it was no surprise when he showed up to her house and tried to control her in regards to her children. She told the interrogating officer that this was a common behavior for him. When he moved out to Texas, he took the kids with him without her consent. Then when she got them back, he quote-unquote filed something and tried to ensure she only got visitation because she's quote-unquote crazy. Then she tells him not to show up to take the kids to school and he does anyways, lets himself in the house, and then begins starting arguments with Lori. At least, that's how Lori tells the story. But what she doesn't realize is, during the interview, she implicates herself as the instigator of the altercation that occurred just prior to Charles's murder. She talks about how something manipulative that Charles does is always leave an object behind so he has an excuse to go back and confront her one last time. On this day, apparently he did that with his cell phone, and so he came back into the house to retrieve it, and it was in Lori's hands. She readily admits to the officer that she was not willing to give it back, and begins interrogating Charles about who he's texting all day long. Again, not realizing she's implicating herself as the instigator. When it's all said and done, according to Lori, Tylee and JJ are already outside the house waiting to be taken to school. Given this, against any common person's better judgment, Lori decides to take them to school, only moments after her ex-husband had just been shot. This is why Lori Vallow arrived to the scene in the middle of the responding officer questioning Alex Cox as he sat on the curb in front of the house. It's because she had decided to leave and take her kids to school. I can speculate that, in hindsight, this might have been a weak attempt at an alibi. The most interesting part about this entire thing to me, aside from the fact that yet another person lies on the trail of death that follows behind Lori Vallow, is the fact that she claims her brother Alex, the one who shot Charles dead, was a gun guy. He was proficient and responsible with his weapons. And yet he shot Charles multiple times, quote-unquote, in self-defense. Not just once, or even twice, and not just to knock him down. Several times. And he also did it when he very easily could have called 911. What else is interesting is the fact that only hours after Charles was murdered, she decided to go to a pool party that night and act like nothing was wrong. But I digress. Just remember this for later. Soon after Charles's death, Lori was quick to call in and claim his life insurance. Interestingly, this is the exact reason why she would claim to police that she was afraid for her life, trying to implicate Charles as an abusive ex-husband. She says that he wanted to have her killed for her life insurance, and yet here she was, not soon after he died, trying to get her hands on his. Thankfully, Charles knew better, and Lori received an email shortly after she had called in, stating that she had been removed from his policy only a few days prior to his death. Instead, the sole beneficiary to Charles's life insurance policy was his sister, a sister who, like Charles, could see right through Lori, but unlike Charles, had absolutely no shred of sympathy for her and knew exactly what she was up to. 
When recalling the day of Charles's death, Lori's other brother, Adam, who had been estranged from her, tells that he was supposed to meet up with Alex and Charles separately to see his brother, but also to help Charles have a discussion with the president of the church that Lori was following. Like Charles, he had some emotional attachment to Lori, being so close to her for so many years, and like Charles, Adam could see Lori spiraling. Like Charles's sister, Adam could see that what happened to Charles was sinister at best. But he didn't even know about it until he heard about it on the news. Adam and Charles remained quite close over the years, even as Charles and Lori continued to argue and eventually Charles would file for divorce. In fact, on the day of his murder, Charles was texting Adam a lot, again because they had plans. And in fact, that was who Charles was texting when Lori refused to give back his phone and interrogated him about who he's been talking to. So in Adam's eyes, I'm sure you can see how it would be unusual for Charles to stop answering the phone on July 11th of 2019. They had plans, they had been talking, and suddenly Charles goes ghost. Well, we know it's because he was murdered, but Adam didn't, and he wouldn't find out for quite a while. Adam says that on that day, he got a text from Charles saying that Alex, Lori and Adam's other brother, was at the house while Charles was trying to pick up JJ and take him to school. Adam immediately knew something was wrong, and even warned Charles that him and Lori could be up to something. But then Adam doesn't hear from Charles for days. He even mentions it to a friend, that he came all the way out here to Chandler, Arizona, just for his friend to ghost him, which was very unusual. Adam mentions Charles by name, and out of curiosity, this friend Googles Charles and discovers that he had been shot to death. In this same retelling of events, Adam talks about the time when Lori cut him off and stopped communicating with him completely. He talks about how his sister was becoming more and more involved with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But as we know, she began following extremes, ideologies that were nonsensical. And one day, Adam and Lori got into a confrontation where Lori says, you think I'm crazy, don't you? And he says, I don't know if you're crazy, but none of what you're saying makes any sense to me. This is when Adam and Charles began fostering their relationship. Adam confides in Charles about Lori's weird behavior, and Charles reciprocates concern right back. Adam notes that Lori had turned to extreme groups and started preparing for the end. He talked about the incident where Lori began accusing Charles of being someone else named Ned. Adam talked about how Lori's reasoning for this was that there was a slight height discrepancy between Charles and whomever was now living in his body. Adam also recalls a conversation with Charles during the process of them separating where Charles was sobbing over the loss of who his wife once was and he didn't recognize her anymore. It's for these reasons, these incidences that Adam and Charles fleshed out with each other over time, that Adam believes Alex and Lori were responsible in purposefully orchestrating the murder of Charles. He thinks that Charles was lured to the house to pick up JJ, even though Lori insisted to the interviewing officers that Charles was coming to do it on his own volition. Adam doesn't think that's true. Adam thinks that somehow Lori managed to get him over to her house. 
Adam thinks that Alex was there on purpose. Adam also thinks that it was intentional that this was planned around the time when Lori and the kids were supposed to leave for school. This whole thing was intentional, according to him, and many others believe that too. At the end of the summer, in the beginning of fall in 2019, things begin picking up rapidly with Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell, Tylee, and JJ. In September of 2019, Lori, Tylee, and JJ moved to Rexburg, Idaho to be near Chad Daybell. Earlier in August, Lori had returned JJ's service dog, a service dog that he had used for autism and she'd cited during this return that they had had a change in circumstances. Suddenly, JJ wouldn't need a service dog anymore. Later in September, once the family was in Idaho, Lori contacted Rexburg's Kennedy Elementary School to tell them that she was withdrawing JJ, claiming to start homeschooling him. We'd find out later that only two days prior, on September 22nd of 2019, a doorbell video of JJ was captured of him playing outside with a friend, and that was one of the last times he was ever seen alive, the official last time being later that day on his last day of school. We also find out that as of September 22nd, Tylee had also not been seen for over two weeks. Earlier that month, on September 8th, Tylee Ryan was last seen alive in Yellowstone National Park on a trip with her mom, JJ, and her uncle Alex. And the strangest part is that no one even noticed. In fact, it would take months before anyone clued into the fact that Tylee and JJ were nowhere to be found. In the time leading up to both Tylee and JJ's suspicious disappearances, as well as for quite a while after the fact, Lori had begun and was continuing to foster relationships with people who would come to be indoctrinated with Chad and Lori's values. Before long, their shared belief systems laid the groundwork for the group to all become friends. Friends who all believed in the same apocalyptic end times and who would gather together to discuss their common goals. Lori was able to successfully drag her niece, Melanie Pulowski, into this friend group alongside her other friend, Melanie Gibb. This group would gather together and practice their radicalized extremist beliefs about the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. In fact, it was around this time where Lori herself started to believe that she was the second coming of Christ. They would quote-unquote practice obscure rituals together and magic or castings as Melanie Gibb called them. They often gathered together and decided who in their lives were zombies and who were dark souls. Lori would eventually develop a map of zombies in the world by state, and even ranked the people in her life by whether they were good or zombies or dark souls. According to one report I read, Lori Vallow believed she had the power within her to cast out all the dark souls in a single state. She would perform a series of rituals, give her boyfriend, Chad Daybell, a call, and wait for his affirmation to tell her that she had, in fact, casted them all out. The group decided together who was evil. This list included Charles and even Tylee. 
and also included some of the other people in both Melanie Gibbs and Melanie Pulowski's life. This group would go on to make it their sole mission to exterminate all of them. It all started on October 2nd, 2019, when police received a 911 call from a man named Brandon Boudreau. 911, where's your emergency? Um, someone just shot my window. Okay, um, where at? Um, away, but I can see them driving off. Okay, someone shot uh, at your vehicle? Yeah, and it hit my window, it shattered my driver's side window. Um, okay, when you pulled into his driveway? As I was trying to pull into my driveway. Okay. Sorry, I'm a little lost breath. They just drove off, I saw them drive off. Okay. Do you know who these people are? I have no idea. I moved into a new home about a week ago. Brandon was actually the ex-husband in the making of Melanie Pulowski. The two were in the middle of a divorce. And eventually, Brandon would move to a remote location, a neighborhood not too far from his home for Melanie, that only Melanie knew the location of. Brandon was calling 911 on this day because as he was pulling into his driveway, someone in a green Jeep Wrangler shot at his window. When police arrive, he begins to describe the vehicle. Unbeknownst to him, the vehicle description actually perfectly matches the vehicle of Tylee Ryan, Lori Vallow's daughter, who's been missing for just under a month at this point. He describes the situation as benign at first. He thought it was just a neighbor near the end of his driveway who was waiting for him possibly for some reason, maybe because he had just moved in. But as he continues pulling in, he sees the Jeep open his back window before seeing a long muzzle and then a shot. Brandon stated that he didn't think it was a real gun, and he recalls seeing that extended muzzle and thinking it might have been a paintball gun. But it would turn out that the gun that shot at him was very real. Brandon tells the officer that he was going through a divorce with Melanie Pulowski, and that she was the only person who knew the location of his home. He even mentioned some quote-unquote crazy stuff that happened when the officer asked if Brandon had any enemies or anyone who would want to see him dead. What he's talking about is the death of Charles Woodcock. We know it was Alex at this point who did it, but regardless, he says, quote, I hope that has nothing to do with this. At the time, it was presumed to be just an altercation. In hindsight, we know it was likely by design. I'm sure other people in their lives thought so too, but it's possible no one was saying it out loud. That was until other people were being targeted. Brandon says that the only people he could possibly think might have been in that car trying to shoot him were that group, his ex-wife and their friends, Lori, Chad, and the other Melanie. A later released probable cause statement states that between October of 2018 and October of 2019, Alex Cox, Lori, and Chad Daybell identified Brandon Boudreau as a quote-unquote dark soul. It further elaborates on the fact that in late September, Alex, Lori, and Chad were preparing for Brandon's murder. Some of these preparations include tinting that green Jeep Wrangler that belonged to Tylee, removing its back seat, and removing its back wheel. Although at the time these details were unknown, even Brandon knew that these people were after him. But they were also after Tammy Daybell, Chad's wife. According to them, she was also a dark soul. 
During all of this, Tammy Daybell was thought to have no idea of her husband's affair with Lori. But for reasons unclear, other than maybe the fact that Tammy was getting in the way of Chad's relationship with Lori, that group also considered her a dark soul. One of the reports I read for this case details an incident where Chad Daybell allegedly tries to convince his group of friends that his wife, Tammy, was deceased. I'm not sure exactly what the motive behind this was, and I'm not sure if it worked either. I'm not sure if they believed him. Frankly, I can also only assume that what would happen next was an attempt at seeing that vision come to life, whether it was a group effort or just simply Chad's doing. But anyways, here's what happened. On October 9th of 2019, only a few days after Melanie Pulowski's soon-to-be ex-husband was attacked, Tammy Daybell was also shot at. Reports I read stated that a masked man approached Tammy and shot at her with what she thought was a paintball gun. She survived this incident, and to me it's unclear what kind of gun it was, if it was a BB, if it was a paintball gun, but this time I don't think it was a real gun, unlike the one that shot at Brandon Boudreaux. Interestingly, only one day later, on October 10th, Lori's oldest son, Colby, from a previous marriage, received a Venmo payment from Tylee's phone, and another one soon after. We know now that Tylee had been missing for over a month at this point. Consequently, Colby had not heard from his sister in quite a while, and was texting her saying that he was worried. Colby received a reply that Tylee was fine, she was just busy, but Colby continued to worry, unsure if those messages really came from Tylee. Evidently, this group of Lori, Chad, and two Melanies was quite busy during the early days of October. But then, on October 19th, only 10 days after the initial attack on Tammy, Tammy Daybell died. She was found to have passed away suddenly in her sleep in her home that she shared with Chad in Salem, Idaho. Chad Daybell claimed that night before she went to bed, she had a quote-unquote terrible cough and wasn't feeling well. In hindsight, her death has been questioned by many, even more so because the entire family at the time that Tammy died, including Chad, refused to let an autopsy happen. Thus, her death was ruled by natural causes. But if we fast forward for a moment into the early months of January 2020, when the saga of Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow starts to finally unravel, we hear from Chad and Tammy's children. They would come forward in 2020 with concerns that their mother, Tammy Daybell, may or may not have been asphyxiated. They also detail how in the days leading up to her death, their mom was often seen getting out of breath easily, which was uncommon for her. She was getting tired easy, and she was going to bed earlier and earlier. Given these developments and further investigation, later in 2020, Tammy Daybell's manner of death would be changed from natural causes to suspicious. Her body has since been exhumed, and finally she's been granted an autopsy. That procedure was completed in February of 2021, but no results have yet to be released. If we bounce back in time, just under a month from when Tammy Daybell died in her sleep, Chad decided it would be a good time to finally get married to Lori, which they did on November 5th 
of 2019. Lori Vallow married her fifth husband, Chad Daybell, on the islands of Hawaii. Meanwhile, her daughter Tylee had been missing for almost two months, and her son, JJ, almost one and a half. Allegedly, while Lori and Chad were on the islands, they were telling locals that they had a daughter who died in 2017, likely referring to Tylee. They told others that they had no other children, which we know that even if we don't count Tylee or JJ, simply isn't true. But while Chad and Lori were enjoying their honeymoon in Hawaii, on November 15th, Gilbert police received yet another phone call from Brandon Boudreaux. Remember, that's Melanie Palowski's soon-to-be ex-husband. This time, it was a phone call about Melanie being out front of his house, demanding to see their children. After the shooting incident, which Brandon suspected to be at the very least at the whim of her guidance, Brandon had gotten himself a restraining order. At this point in time, this was the smart thing to do, but unfortunately, it still didn't fully protect him. Melanie's reasoning for showing up on this day was that she was worried that the kids were in danger and that they were unsafe around their father. When police arrive, she says that she doesn't know what Brandon's been getting into lately. He had been shot at a couple months ago. Obviously, it doesn't take me telling you that this statement itself is very ironic given she was the one who more than likely directed her friend group to shoot at him, but thankfully, the responding officers don't take anything she says at face value, and despite whatever pleas she makes, they are there to respond to her as a trespasser. To support her argument that her children are currently in danger, she decides to whip out a set of documents that she has prepared to hand over to officers. She contests that it's some sort of ordered agreement, stating that right now is her time with the kids, and Brandon is withholding them from her. I mention this because it's an obviously very poorly thought out and even more poorly executed attempt at manipulating the police, which is something that this group tends to do often. Officers right away find these papers suspicious because there is no signature from a judge on these documents, but she claims that it's a court-ordered agreement. To combat their suspicions, she insists that there's another set of papers in her vehicle, which, as we follow along with the body cam footage from the responding officers, we see is parked at least five or six houses down from Brandon's home. As the officers follow her to the vehicle, we notice that someone else is sitting in the car. None other than Alex Cox. Eventually, there is some discussion, but Melanie never produces this second set of papers that is supposedly signed by a judge. Eventually, her and Alex drive off, but she is later detained because, well, she was trespassing. At this point, it has become evident that this group, Chad, Lori, and the two Melanies, will do everything in their power to sabotage the people they were once closest to, for the sake of Jesus Christ and his salvation, I guess. But their agenda and rhetoric wouldn't be able to stand up on its own for too long. Because on November 26th of 2019, Charles Woodcock's sister, Kay, and her husband, Larry, were asking Lori where her kids were. Later in November, Charles's sister, Kay Woodcock, and her husband, Larry, were continuously asking Lori to see her kids, but she kept refusing, giving them the runaround, so to speak. 
They would call police and issue a welfare check on Tylee and JJ at Lori's home in Idaho, since no one had seen them since September. This welfare check was executed on November 26th of 2019. And when police arrive, Lori conjures up a story, just as she always does, in her same articulate, believable tone about how the biological family of JJ has been trying to fight her for him since Charles quote-unquote passed away, a far cry from was murdered. Interestingly, Kay Woodcock is the same relative who ended up inheriting Charles's life insurance policy instead of Lori when he was murdered. I think it's interesting to note that Kay, Charles's sister, must have been privy to what he was going through with her, and must be all too aware of what Lori is capable of. I don't blame her for fighting her for JJ, and I don't blame her for being concerned either. Interestingly, when this welfare check was executed, of course, <laughs> Alex Cox was present, as he always is. When questioned regarding her children's whereabouts, she tells responding officers that JJ is in Arizona with a friend of hers, Melanie Gibb. However, aside from this vague detail that she offers up, Lori is not very forthcoming about the location of her children to the responding officers. And her reasoning for this is that she's had a chaotic year, she's had to move around a lot, and one of her brothers is trying to kill her. Presumably, she means Adam, who we know was in cahoots of sorts with Charles before he died. And by cahoots, I mean a supportive friend who is trying to help his brother-in-law navigate through a tumultuous relationship, to say the least, with his sister. Lori also claims that Charles was trying to kill her for her own $2 million life insurance policy, which is an interesting point to make, considering that's exactly what she was trying to do, allegedly. She claims given this series of events, she's had to move the kids around for their own safety and doesn't like to be forthcoming about their location or stagnant in any location because of fear of other family members. Police decide to take Lori's word for this and give her a deadline. She has five days to reduce her children to law enforcement or else she will be arrested and interrogated. However, when police call Melanie to verify JJ's whereabouts afterwards, she says he's not with her. In fact, she would call back a week later and tell police that Chad and Lori asked her to lie. They asked her to say that JJ was with her and so they wouldn't have to explain his whereabouts and she refused. Although for many months, Melanie Gibb and Melanie Pulowski were seemingly entranced by Lori and Chad Daybell, Melanie Gibb just couldn't comply this time. This was too far. We find out later that Chad and Lori called Melanie Gibb the very same day the welfare check was conducted. That was presumably the first thing they did after police left their residence that day, was call Melanie and ask her to lie for them. She reportedly, quote, didn't know what to say. Backtracking to that same day the welfare check was conducted, after it was all said and done, and Melanie received a phone call from police where she admitted JJ wasn't there, police were getting ready to go back to the residence the very next day, and they had recruited help from the FBI. However, when the FBI got there with additional Rexburg, Idaho police, the house was empty. Her and Chad had fled, and were nowhere to be found. Neighbors had seen Lori and Chad packing up a truck the night before, and when Melanie made that additional phone call to police, telling them that Chad and Lori had asked her to lie, this is when they found out that not only had JJ been missing for months, but so had Tylee. 
This is a random point in the story, but I promise it'll all make sense. Bear with me. During this time, when the FBI had just caught in wind that Lori and Chad had fled after getting word that police were catching on to their two children being missing, Alex, Lori's brother, who was always at the scene of everything, decided it would be a good time to get married. In late 2019, he was wed to a woman named Zaluma Pastenes of Gilbert, Arizona. I mention this because that December, Alex died, and Zaluma would go on to give an interview with police that becomes very important to understanding who Alex was and the lengths that he would go to to eliminate the dark souls in his life. Alex's death was interestingly thought to be due to natural causes. This is, I can't even keep track of how many deaths have been in this case so far, but one of the few that has not been by design. His death was attributed to high blood pressure and previously existing blood clots. A 911 call was made by the son of his new wife that Alex had passed out in the bathroom, and unfortunately they were unable to resuscitate him. Much later after Alex's passing, when this entire case with Lori, Chad, and even Alex sometimes begins to unravel in 2020, 2021, Zaluma is brought in for questioning by police. And in this discussion, she talks about a night where Alex was on the phone with Chad and Lori for quite a while. That night she was having some back pain, and Alex had offered to give her a massage, but he oddly requested that they get a plastic tarp from Walmart to lay over the bed, ideally so the oil that he was going to use in this massage wouldn't get everywhere. She found this odd in hindsight as he had done this previously and not requested a plastic tarp be put down, but in the end, they ended up going to Walmart and getting one. She received the massage and she fell asleep. Then, when she woke up, she heard someone talking. She called out for Alex and asked who he was talking to, and he denied that he was talking to anyone at all, saying he was talking to himself. That night, she talks about how Alex was typically a very funny, happy-go-lucky guy with a good sense of humor that was employed often, but that night he was very quiet. That's about all he said to her, was that, I'm not talking to anyone, no one's here, I was just talking to myself. After this, she asked him to watch a movie together, and he didn't say a word to her for the rest of the night, but he was glued to his phone. She says in this interview with police that she believes given the phone call with Chad and Lori, the suspicious activities that have been happening in the past year, Alex not acting like himself, the weird plastic wrap situation, that was supposed to be her last day. Meaning, she thinks Alex was supposed to kill her that night. And police agree. They say, it very well could have been your last day. But thankfully, for whatever reason, she was spared. If we jump backwards in time a little bit, FBI are now working to investigate the disappearances of Tylee and JJ, and they are also working to find out where exactly Chad and Lori Daybell fled to. Interestingly, they are also starting to look into the death of Tammy Daybell at this point. Investigators contended that JJ and Tylee's lives were in danger at this point. They knew that they were not with Chad and Lori, but that they likely knew exactly where those kids were. Authorities used the circumstantial information that they had to get a warrant to search a storage locker that was rented by Lori back in 2019. 
Inside of it, they found essentially all of Tylee and JJ's belongings that were abandoned when they left Idaho. This same storage unit was accounted for in the probable cause statement that was put out about the planned murder of Brandon Bordreau, who thankfully survived. Buying this storage unit was a part of the planning for Lori and Chad, planning for all of the crimes they were going to commit for the sake of exterminating Dark Souls. Lori's deadline to produce her kids came and went. Law enforcement never got a visual on them. This meant that Lori had to be arrested and interrogated. She was under great suspicion for what had happened to Tylee and JJ. Law enforcement and the surrounding community, as well as an international audience, had likely figured that they were long gone. I distinctly remember this point in the case as it was developing. The hunt for Lori Vallow was on, and there was international concern over the whereabouts of Tylee and JJ. I remember thinking to myself that I didn't want to assume the worst, but like everybody I talked to about the case and everybody who was reporting on it, I think we all knew what was to come next. It was only a matter of time. Lori was found in Kauai, Hawaii and arrested, and she was facing numerous charges of desertion and non-support of her dependent children. At this point, they couldn't charge her in connection with anything related to the possible death of her children. They hadn't found them yet. But this was as close as they could get, given that she hadn't produced her children on time. She agreed to be extradited to Idaho, where she would be held, while the search for her kids was underway. By all accounts, she was entirely uncooperative. Police began looking deeper into Lori's friends and family which is how, again, different agencies began making connections between all of the people that I've talked about who died, all the police reports that had been filed, all the people who had been shot at, and all the incidences that had occurred over the past year. As the investigation was developing, police figured they had enough circumstantial evidence to apply for another warrant. This time, they applied for a search and seize on Chad Daybell's property. They had reason to believe that the key pieces they were looking for to figure out what happened to Tylee and JJ were located in his house in Salem, Idaho. This warrant was executed on June 9th of 2020. Police surrounded the property, dug up anything they thought was suspicious looking, and sprawled the entire area. Chad watched from a distance on site while calling Lori in prison one last time. He warns her, that police are searching their property. The audio is hard to hear, but he says something about the kids. Both of them knew exactly what was coming, because on this day, during the execution of this warrant, Tylee and JJ would be found deceased, buried in Chad's backyard. Authorities think Tylee was murdered on or about September 9th when she went missing and was last seen in Yellowstone National Park but they think she was murdered in Rexburg, based off the location of Alex's cell phone data. They also believe that JJ died on the same day he was last seen alive. Both of the children had been burned badly and dismembered before being buried next to all the wild animals Chad had shot. They were each tightly wrapped in plastic and had enormous amounts of duct tape on their body. Once the discovery was made, Chad got in his car and tried to drive away, but thankfully, police apprehended him quickly and arrested him, charging him immediately with destruction or concealment of evidence regarding the remains that they had just found. Him and Lori were both held at a million dollars bail, and Lori was also charged with resisting or obstructing officers 
criminal solicitation to commit a crime, and contempt of court. On May 25, 2021, Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow were both charged with the first-degree murder of Tylee, JJ, and Tammy Daybell. Then, in June, Lori was also indicted on a charge of conspiracy to murder Charles, her ex-husband. The charges of desertion and non-support of her dependent children were eventually dropped because Lori began cooperating, and she was instead charged with obstruction or concealment of evidence in regards to her children's remains. Lori was also charged with grand theft related to Social Security survivor benefits of over $1,000 allocated for the care of minors Tylee and JJ that were appropriated after the children were missing and ultimately found dead. Chad was also charged with insurance fraud, related to the life insurance policy he had on Tammy. On May 27th of 2021, Lori Vallow was found incompetent and unfit to stand trial. Her case was stayed for now. But then she was found competent again, and then uncompetent again, and then competent again. The court had put a start date of this January 2023 for both trials of Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow, but it was cancelled in November 2022 for reasons unknown. Thankfully, a new one has been set for April 3rd of 2023, so we will get answers to the many questions I'm sure you all have. I know I do. I'm curious about the process of radicalization that Lori went through. According to Charles Woodcock, and even according to Lori, their relationship, their marriage, it was perfect until all of a sudden it just wasn't. Was meeting Chad Daybell the thing that started it all, or was Lori vulnerable to begin with? And I say vulnerable not to empathize with her. She's evil. She is the type of evil that she was looking to exterminate from this world. But why did she feel so convicted in doing that? And what about her loved ones made her think that they were the ones that needed to be exterminated? A report by NBC News outlined some court documents that may provide insight into Lori's exact motive for killing her children specifically. She believed that they were zombies and had become possessed. But I also think her marriage to Chad might have something to do with it. If you recall, Lori had allegedly made a comment to Charles Woodcock that she would kill him if he got in the way of her preparing for the second coming of Christ in July of 2020. I believe that Chad's role in this is not to be understated. Is it possible that Chad convinced Lori that her children were getting in the way of her preparing for Christ? Is it possible that her delusions had become so radicalized by the people around her, just feeding off of each other, that they all genuinely believed that these people had to be killed? The people who loved them all once upon a time more than anyone in the entire world? Even JJ? I'm also quite curious to know exactly what happened to Tammy Daybell. Her children seem to state matter-of-factly that she was asphyxiated and that they could not believe their own father had done this. However, those autopsy results have still never been released, so I'm not sure. The symptoms that she was described to have been experiencing before her death possibly indicate to me some sort of poisoning, but I don't know, it seems so far off from what they had been doing to everyone else who had been shot. I'm also curious to know if the deaths of Tylee and JJ followed that same MO, or if they were different for any reason. Again, Lori had claimed that Tylee had been growing closer and closer to becoming a dark soul. I would like to know what evidence is presented for the charge of conspiracy to commit murder against Charles Woodcock. 
To us, it seems obvious. It fits in line with the story. It makes sense, given what we know about Lori Vallow, that her and her brother would team up to try and murder Charles for the sake of their rhetoric and agenda. But I'm curious to know what evidence that officers have that is presentable in court that extends beyond the scope of circumstantial. I'm so thankful that these two were captured, although I believe it was only a matter of time because their escape plan was quite chaotic, and they had implicated too many people in their crimes to ever get away with the type of damage that they had caused. I'm thankful that everyone affected is getting justice, although I know no amount of legal proceedings or justice served will ever make up for the damage that is done. Hopefully, we get all the answers to all of these questions during the trial set in April of this year. But until then, all we can do is wait. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimeopedia podcast. I'm thankful to be able to share these stories with you, especially when they're by request. So if you want to hear something, feel free to request it on my website at crimeopediapod.ca. You can also get a hold of me on Instagram at crimeopediapod, and we can chat there about current cases, cases I've covered, or something you want to hear about. Thank you all again, and I will see you back here for the next one. But until then, stay safe. Stay safe.